Micah chapter 5 is our focus for study this morning. We've been working our way through the minor prophets and we have skipped over a couple. We'll go back and study them, but skipped over a couple chronologically to get to Micah because of the prophecy that is in this verse, this chapter that we'll read in just a minute. We'll come back to this chapter again this evening and we'll come back to this chapter next week. This is so central to God's redemptive plan, to sense so central to this book and uh, explains that, that surprising hope that we've been thinking about already this morning. And we've been focused on Micah's, um, Micah's preaching to us, the hope and comfort brought by the right king, King Jesus, this one born in an unlikely place in the city of David, King David, but he's been the kind of king we need. He is a tender king, a shepherd king. He is, as we will see this morning, a triumphant king. It's hard to appreciate at times. It's hard really to believe, as we said often in the book of Revelation, that Jesus wins, but we must remember it because from one end of the Bible to the, to the other, that is the promise. Jesus is winning and he will finally win. The question is, are you in his kingdom? We begin reading in chapter five, we'll read selected verses because of limited time, five, one through seven, and then some selected verses in chapter six. That's page 770 in your pew Bibles. Micah chapter five. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into their land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery And I sent you, sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, 
Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Now he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God." Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Oh Lord, would you open our eyes to behold the hopeful truths that we need from this passage, convincing us that you indeed are our shepherd king, our triumphant king. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said together, amen. Several years ago, Pastor Paco Amadar, pastoring on the west side of Chicago, was asked to pray at a vigil being held for a, a young man, a young, young teenager who was killed in a gang. He stood before the crowd that had gathered for the prayer vigil most all of them teenagers, young teenagers. He quickly asked the Lord, what in the world am I to say to this group of young men? What hope can I give? What can I say to give any perspective? When he got to the podium, he asked permission from the crowd, may I speak from my heart? Then he said, since most of you are half my age, I am the age of your fathers. Would you allow me to address you, address you on behalf of your fathers? I know you've heard plenty of times that this back and forth violence in our neighborhood is complete nonsense. You've been told how destructive gang behavior is, but today, on behalf of your dads, I want to say to you what should have been said a long time ago. My son, my daughter, would you forgive me for not being there for you when you were little? Will you forgive me for not being there when you took your first steps? Will you forgive me for not being there to play catch with you when you were young? Will you forgive me for leaving you when you most needed me? As the words poured out of his heart, he lost control of his emotion. Tears streaming down his face evoked something very special in that group whom he was addressing. They too let down their guard, received what he was saying, 
and wept with broken hearts too. What was the answer the Lord gave him? It was not to preach down to their pain, not to give glib answers, not to propose some kind of human-centered trust in stronger force or violence. It was instead to imitate the Lord Jesus, the great King, who triumphs over self-destruction and selfishness by coming into our brokenness and saying, let me take your sins, your disappointments, the death of your dreams. Let me take your pain on myself and then let's begin bringing hope together. This is the kind of king addressing these people in Micah's day. This is God promising the Lord King Jesus who would put on flesh, come into our world, walk in our place, live perfectly in our place, and then die the condemnation, die in the condemned place that we deserve on the cross shedding his blood for sins he did not commit but for us, shedding his sin for all of the evil of this world that he had nothing to do with, came into it in order to destroy it from the inside out. And all who look to him by faith and say, yes, that was for me, please cleanse me with your blood, are joined to him and become a part of this life that is plodding, plodding toward the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ when he will make things all right. How do you experience that triumphant king? How do you get on the side of victory? How do you get in his army? How do you become a part of his kingdom? Well, it's three points that you've heard a thousand times. It's the same three points of the gospel that we make in one way or another, though we use different words every week, guilt, grace, and gratitude. It is by confessing guilt, your own, the guilt of the world as well, confessing guilt. It is to receive grace. It is to respond with gratitude. All of those are found in this passage. This is the way God begins with the people of Israel, by confronting their guilt. But not because, and we've seen this numerous times, haven't we? Not because God delights in making people feel guilty. But because he knows until as Pastor Todd urged us to do in our confession today, until we confess all of our sins, until we acknowledge who we truly are in comparison to a holy God, that we are part of the rebellion, there can be no healing. And as long as we are on the rebelling side, we're on the losing side. It's not only destroying all that is around us, it is destroying self. It is out of love, it is out of goodness that God confronts our 
guilt and look at the forms it takes in, the, in our passage. In verse five, uh, here the, in verses five and six, the people of Israel in their pride are saying, when the Assyrian comes into our land, we'll raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princes of peace. Let him come. Sennacherib, remember, is the most powerful king of the world at the time, the, the king of Assyria. And he is, he is beating his war drums against, against uh, Judah. And uh, they said, uh, let him come. We can take him on. Pride. And then what happened? Sennacherib came. He trampled 46 of their cities. He killed 200,000 of their people and he surrounded Jerusalem. And he says in his own journal, he shut up Hezekiah, King Hezekiah in his palace like a bird in a cage. What did the people of Israel then, people of Judah have to do? Verse six, it turns so quickly, doesn't it? Let him come, verse five. In verse six, deliver us from the Assyrians. We know how God answered that prayer. God sent his angels and killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's men. Sennacherib turned tail and ran, eventually suffered his own destruction. But there is the first sin, pride. What is the second sin exposed in our passage in verses 10 and 11? It is power. You trust in your horses. You trust in your, in your strength. You trust in your material things. You trust in your chariots. You trust in your strongholds. You trust in your power, your human machinations, your, your engines of war, your economy. He confronts pride, he confronts power, and he confronts perversion. Verses 12 to 15 is the description of their Asherah images. These these idols built uh, as perverse reflections of their sexual indulgence confronts any attempt to displace God's good rule, his good laws, his good intentions for us as his image bearers. He confronts them and he says, I will conquer them in those who are mine. I will conquer these sins that you might belong to me. Guilt. He's putting his finger on those things in us too. We're guilty of those things too. Guilty of our pride, guilty of trusting in our power, guilty of our perversion in secret and darkness. And God exposes it because he wants to heal you with his grace. Now notice before we leave this point, and by the way, your outline is irrelevant at this point. But he says not only that he conquers us by defeating our sinful enemies, he conquers the world by dispersing us. 
You see, verses seven to nine, he talks about the, he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to send you among the nations. If you don't repent, I'm going to send you away into, into, into exile. No, it won't be by Assyria. I'll spare you this time. But in the future, they will not be spared. They will, they will continue in their idolatry, their self-trust, and he will send them to Babylon. And we typically see that as God's punishment of sin. And maybe the application we make in our mind is, if I don't straighten up, if I don't repent, God's going to send me to a place I don't want to go. But we've noticed even in while we studied Jonah, right? When he tried to run away from the Lord and God swallowed him with a fish. Yes, God is disciplining Jonah and turning him back to himself, but he, even when he is disciplining us, he is working redemption, not only in us, but he's the kind of God that works redemption in those around us, even while he's disciplining us. How would the nations have ever heard of the one true God had the northern tribes not been dispersed to the other nations? How would Babylon ever have heard of the one true God had the nation of Judah not been sent into their borders. Even while he disperses us, he is testifying to his grace through us. How does that happen in your life? It's this way. Yes, God puts his finger on those places in your and my life where we are rebelling against the Lord, where we must repent. But when we have recognized our sin, confessed our guilt, There is no benefit of staying in that guilt. God doesn't enjoy it. We don't enjoy it. The only purpose of that guilt is to turn us back to him, to turn us to his redemption, to turn us back to fellowship with him where we are most ourselves. But then he also by that action makes us evangelists. Yes, he disperses us. Maybe he will move you someplace else. But he is at least moving us into our neighborhoods and he is moving you out to your co-workers and moving you out to your fellow family members. And this is what the task of evangelism is. It is to convince people that if God can save you, he can save them. That's not our typical approach to evangelism. Our typical approach to evangelism is to say, is is an American marketing scheme. If I can pretend that I have it all together, that my life is better, that things are going so well, then they will say, hey, I want what you have, and they'll ask me about it, and I can bring them to church, and they'll come to know Christ. That's not Christianity. That's a cult. That's what cults do. Cults say, hey, you want real prosperity? You want to be as great as I am? You want to have it all together like I do? Perfect family? Shut up. Kids, be quiet. Perfect marriage? Don't tell him, honey. Do you want to be perfect like I am? The world doesn't buy that. But when you say, so what is it that you think that God wouldn't like you for? That what is it that is hopeless in your life? What is it that you've done that you think can't be forgiven? Well, not only have I committed some category of that, but I have a friend who has done worse. 
And then in my church, you put them all in the same place. And just by quantity, we're worse. And then we're grafted into a vine of God's people throughout redemptive history, and you can't live long enough to be worse than all of them. So God points out our sin, moves us to guilt, drives us to grace, not only to be healed of our sins, but to advertise him as the triumphant king of grace for whom no sin, no failure, no pathology is too great for him to forgive and to restore and to use to rebuild others. It is that guilt that drives us to grace and that grace is described in verses one through five in particular when he reminds them of their redemption from Egypt and God makes a case to his people. You know, you can imagine them as they are desperate, as they're hunkered down in the walls of Judah saying, we are about to get what we deserve. When they are absolutely hopeless, God comes to them and said, do you think I redeemed you? Went to all the trouble to get you out of Egypt to let you go extinct now? And, And so he makes his case for grace. Let me convince you how gracious I am. We didn't read it, but in verses one through five, he, he engages like a, a, a trial lawyer making a case to prove to his people. Look at the humility of God. I'm going to prove to you my grace. You're doubting that my grace is greater than all your sin. I'm going to prove it. First of all, I'm going to prove it in the court of creation. So he points around at the creation and he says, look at all that is around you, how I have preserved the earth, the beauty that is preserved in the earth. Look beyond the engines of war and see the earth that is shouting to you, declaring to you the praise of my glorious grace. And then he says, I want you to look at providence, just how history has unfolded, and I want you to see Yes, you have had difficulties. You've had trials. You've had problems of pain. But you know, when you think about it, given your rebellion, given uh, the the rebellion uh, for the ages, given the rebellion of humanity, he says, the problem is not with pain. The problem, the really hard thing to figure out is why is there any pleasure left? Why is there ever a good day? Why is there ever enjoyment? Why is there ever enough to eat? Why is there anything that you are enjoying right now? The only explanation is God's grace. Yes, he pushes us to realize our pride, our power, our lust for power, our lust for perversion and and, uh, and self-centeredness, self-destructive ways. He pushes us in order that he might push us to his grace. He proves his grace to us ultimately in the sending of his son to die in our place. What is the only proper response? It is gratitude. Look at all the things we have to be grateful for just in chapter six. Uh, he has shown you. Just just look at these verses in in verse uh, in verse uh, verse eight. These things he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? 
We have this to be grateful for. He is God and we are not. Aren't you exhausted trying to be God? He is God. We are the creatures. The Lord is my shepherd. When I recognize that, I shall not be in want. We have this to be grateful for, for revelation. He has shown you, O man, he, God, has shown you, man, what is good. He's shown it to you. You've been looking for it in all the wrong places. This morning, in this place, he has opened up this thing called the Bible, his word, by which he shows us, reveals to us the good news of how to have a reconciled relationship with him, how to have your sins forgiven, the assurance of eternal life, how to know how to live in a thriving way. He has shown you a man what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And the Lord requires of you what he enables you to do. He requires justice. What is that? We talk about it all the time. It's righteousness. As Benjamin Disraeli put it in a speech in the 1800s, it is truth in action. He takes selfish, self-destructive people, and he is such a triumphant king that he transforms them into people who do justice, who put truth in action, and to love mercy. What is mercy but surprising love? He takes selfish, self-destructive people and is such a triumphant king that he transforms us into people who love in surprising ways. That's the way we show our gratitude. And then he answers, how are you going to stay in this place of gratitude for grace? It's the last part that we talked about at baptism. It's to walk humbly with your God. The Hebrew literally is to walk carefully. Or in our parlance, we would say it's to walk dependently. It is to get over that illusion of power. It is to get over that delusion of pride. That delusion of perversion, seeking satisfaction in all kinds of things that only produce more shame. And it is to say, Lord Jesus, I depend on you as my king. Make me like you to do what you do, which is justice and mercy. It's not just a personal thing. It's something we do in the community around us. Remember, God says, I'm going to disperse you. Yes, I'm going to discipline you in doing that, but I'm dispersing you so that you will take to the nations this good news of justice and mercy. We look around in our city, at our country, and it's easy to lose hope. You say, how can you preach on a triumphant king preacher when it all seems to be lost? It does require us to repent of our apathy just like these people of Judah were called to repent of we've been called to that over and over again in these in these prophets but it is not to resort to hopelessness 
In the mid-1800s, a, a Scottish Presbyterian minister named Thomas Guthrie living in that, in that Presbyterian, in that Presbyterian uh, DNA of taking the gospel out of the congregation into the city to see justice and mercy realized in people around them explaining that it comes from Jesus alone. Thomas Guthrie was lamenting before his congregation uh, what was going on in the cities of Scotland. His people were hopeless. They said, they, they were saying to him, preacher, there's no, there's no hope for us. We might as well shut the doors and just, uh, and just hunker down here to ourselves. And he told them, yes, it is appropriate to weep, but not the way you're weeping. You're, you're, you are we, you are to weep like G, with Jesus, but not like Jesus over the city of Jerusalem. Over the city of Jerusalem, Jesus was weeping tears of judgment. It was hopeless for Jerusalem at that point. He said, instead, you should weep like Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, yes, over the pain that death had, broken, had brought to his world, the, the, the pain of death in his, in, among the family that he loved outside of the tomb of Lazarus. But he's not weeping without hope because he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Guthrie said to his people this, so long as we have the case of Nineveh and its repentance, and so long as the return of Christ and final judgment is postponed, we have always before us the possibility of a spiritual and moral resurrection. Weep the tears of Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. Yes, acknowledging the pain and suffering that you're going through individually, that you're going through as a community, but not tears of hopelessness. Tears of hope, knowing Jesus is the triumphant king that loves us too much, loves his world too much to leave us like this forever, but the day is coming. And we have hints of it even now. The day is coming when he will return and he will make all things right. And those who've trusted in him will be on the winning side and say glory to God, our triumphant king in the highest. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, there are some of us, maybe many of us, who cry out with the psalmist, how long, O oh Lord? And how can you say that you are the triumphant king when this has happened to me or this continues to happen in our world. Would you, Holy Spirit, the one Peggy reminded us of, come down and fall on us afresh and cause us to abound in hope, our hope placed in a person named Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, Make us a hopeful people pursuing justice and mercy in total dependence on our good shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.